0: In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, you may be seated. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who has visited and redeemed his people. Every morning when I read this in morning prayer, the opening proclamation of Zechariah as Benedictus as he celebrates the birth of his son John, who will usher in Jesus Christ. Every morning when I read this, I see this startling juxtaposition of terms. Visit and redeem. To visit means to go and see someone, spend time with them, some social time, enjoy one another. Well, hopefully we're enjoying one another, but this generally puts a burden on those who are being visited. The hosts have to care for the visitors. The hosts are happy when the visitors come and uh, even happier when they leave. <laughs> uh, in his book, unfortunately, titled, titled The Devil's Dictionary, <laughs> Richard Ambrose defined hospitality as the virtue which induces us to feed and lodge certain persons who are not in need of food and lodging. <laughs> I don't think we, could, we would call that radical hospitality. <laughs> but God does not visit us in this way. Uh, he doesn't make burdensome social calls. Uh, God visits us for one reason only. It's not to receive uh, food and lodging. Well, actually, it is to receive lodging. I'll get to that. But he visits us so that he can save us uh, so that he can be with us so that he can make his home with us and you know what we tend to do we tend to deter God from from doing that uh, we are not naturally hospitable and God has to make us hospitable uh, but first he has to make us habitable it, it's it's God's project uh, a habitat of humanity my grandparents were missionaries to Tibet um, and they often had to live with other missionaries uh, under the same, uh, same home. It was unavoidable. And my, my grandmother told my mom, uh, Lelia, two families cannot live under the same roof for very long. And, and this is as good a- advice as any that you might receive from the mission field. <laughs> However, when it comes to God's immediate family, God's family has the resources and capacity to live with any human family. And why God would want to live with us, I, I, I do not know. It's, it's, it's a wonderful mystery. But, but the Bible does make it clear that our salvation is really God's, it's not his ultimate purpose, it's it's penultimate purpose. God saves us so that he can establish his presence among us, so that he can be with us. That's what God has always wanted. And again, it's a great mystery, but God redeems us, This is what he has in mind, to be with us. So God does not take us into his house. Rather, God takes up residence with us. We are his host. And when God comes in, talk about radical hospitality, he will reorient our living arrangements, our priorities, our schedules, and reorder our homes if we let him. And only when God does that will we be ready to serve him. Only then do we, the host, become the servant. As it says later on in the Benedictus, he rescues us so that we can serve him without fear, so that we can serve him in complete freedom. So the question is, how does God make his home with us? How does he reorient and reorder our lives? The profound and simple and deep answer he sends us, and and, and paradoxical answer, he sends us his servant. He becomes a servant in our house. He serves us so that we can first serve him. If if you are like me, an inveterate people pleaser and doer, then you and I get this backwards. We serve him so that he will serve us. We do and do and do. Why? Because we want to gain God's favor. We want to get others to praise us. Oh, look at isn't he or she wonderful? What are we doing? We are serving ourselves. And then, of course, there are some of us who are just blatantly, uh, blatantly uh, self-serving. Uh, we think we're special, as did James and John uh, in today's gospel reading. After all, Jesus had given them a nickname. That certainly is a sign of Jesus' affection for them, the Sons of Thunder. You know, they, they worked to live up to that, you know. Um, and they had also been informed, of course, in Mark chapter 9, I believe, they had been informed of the Holy Mysteries and the Mount of Transfiguration. They were in the know. The other disciples didn't know um, So presuming to be Jesus' favorites, they now ask the next logical question. Well, we're in. Now we can ask Jesus, can we be first with you in glory? It's a logical progression. And it's fascinating that Mark introduces this ironic question by showing James and John talking to Jesus as if he were their servant. We want you to do whatever we ask of you to do for us. It's just so blatant. (laughs) But even more remarkable, Mark shows Jesus accepting this role. What do you wish me to do for you? He says to them. And he's thinking, you guys have no idea. <laughs> the, the TV show *Dalton Abbey, which I, I'm sure that all of us have seen, uh, it depicts the lives of aristocrats who live on top and the servants who live on, on, the, on the, bottom, in the bottom quarters. And of course, we immediately gravitate to the servants on the bottom, just, you know, warm and wonderful. Um, but top and bottom, this is not how God sets up residence with us, him on top and us in the bottom. Uh, our starting point with God is our own arrogance, uh, our pride, our wanting always to live upstairs. God's starting point with us is his love, for which he has to live downstairs. Jesus comes in from below into the servant's quarters and serves us to that point where we so love him that we actually want to join him or stay with him down below or join him down below and it's then it's only then that we begin to realize that he really is a king and that life is a lot less stuffy down here we can breathe ironically down below we can breathe because Jesus gives us air and that we rule with Jesus by serving with him And our sense of well-being goes way up. Our joy and our delight, even as our quality of life, might go way down. This is wonderful news. James and John, where do they want to be? On top. They have no idea that they've got to go downstairs for Jesus' coronation. That, in fact, Jesus will receive an ironic crown on his ironic throne the old rugged cross, emblem of suffering and shame. And that irony underscores the reality. Crown and cross, king and servant are one and the same. And that's why Jesus can so easily pick up a towel and wash feet and say to his disciples in John 13, this is what I do, so this is what you must also do for one another and for everyone else in your lives. Everyone else you're going to minister to. If you want to serve the king, act like a servant. We are not kings, but we act like kings. We go from being helplessly out of control as, as, uh, as babies to being tyrannically out of control as toddlers, tiny tyrants. And then, of course, we learn more sophisticated and socially acceptable ways to get our way. But underneath... The culture, the education, all the elaborate stuff on top, the infantile tends to remain. Superficially, it looks like we're serving others, but way down deep. In our deep selves, we are still on the throne. And this is why Jesus has to come in from below, into our subterranean selves. The one who is the root and depth of all things has to break through into our depths into our unholy depths, and change us there. And that's why we sing, oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. He who wishes to be great among you must be a servant, and he who wishes to be first must among you be a slave of all. Mark 10 is not about servant leadership and all the weaselly talk we have about servant leaders. It's about suffering servanthood which always leads whether or not leadership is its intention. And this is the vision of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, the voluntary self-offering of the innocent servant of the Lord, and its images are taken up and used by their apostles in their attempt to understand and proclaim Jesus Christ. And it takes them a long time to understand that Jesus is the servant. Before he reigns in glory, he serves. The Son of God made our salvation his own prize when he took a body and endured sufferings on our behalf. The righteous one, my servant, shall make many righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So we don't define our role before Jesus by what we do and do for him. Instead, we define our role by what Jesus does for us in the very throne room of God. And that means we leave works righteousness far behind. There's something else motivating us. The disciples looking at James and John are indignant, aren't they? When the the two sons of thunder ask to sit with Jesus in his glory. And of course, they're not... Self-reflective enough to know that they're harboring similar ambitions, right, <laughs> of which their righteous indignation is a telltale sign. And then, of course, when Jesus said, can you do this and this, can you take the baptized and the cup, and they, James and John say, oh, we can, yes, having no idea. Thank God they didn't have a clue at that point. James and John think they can emulate Jesus in matters pertaining to the cup and baptism, because all they're thinking is, well, future rewards are accruing, Right. They have no idea. There are certain things that only Jesus can do in his servants for us and that we can only receive but never emulate. And if we try to be like Jesus before allowing him to serve us, our work will be an endless and fruitless exercise, exercise in self-satisfaction. And if we do not allow ourselves to be served, you know what tends to happen? We tend to default to self-service. My son was startled recently. I asked him if I could tell this story. He said, go for it, Dad. He was startled recently when a person he had just met opened uh, with this question. Bentley, do you practice self-care? Well, (laughs) Bentley wasn't quite sure what, uh, what, what the person meant by that, but he did recount that in his recovery from addiction, he had received exquisite care from so many different kind and loving people. And this encouraged him to care for himself and give that same care to others. And he delights in doing so. Self-care is, not a, is, is a given, but it's not a preoccupation. We are a culture obsessed with self, self-improvement, self-affirmation, self-care, self-love, and, and fill it in, any other selfie that I might have missed. Francois Fenelon writes, I beseech you not to listen to self. Self Self-love whispers in one ear and the love of God in the other. The moment we listen to the voice of self crying in our ear, we can no longer hear the modest tones of holy love. But to allow Jesus to do for us, to serve us, is both to know how helpless we are and how beloved we are at the same time. And we tend to be so full of self-loathing that it's hard for us to accept love even as we clamor for love. But when we know that, that we are loved at that point of our deepest need and our deepest despair and our deepest sin and all of that, when we know that we will then serve without giving it a first thought, much less a second thought, because that service is an outpouring of gratitude and not a demonstration of our dedication and our devotion, all our super stuff. You don't know what you're asking for, Jesus says to James and John. Be careful of what you ask for because you just might get it. And in Jesus' case here, it's wonderful. James and John are asking for glory. But what they end up getting is not glory for themselves, but Jesus' death for them. Jesus says, this is how much I love you guys. The death of the servant who suffers for us. What we really want, you know, is not glory. What we really want is love. The love that Jesus had to suffer to give us and the love that we suffer to give to others. Harold Bloom wrote, what is shockingly powerful about this major suffering servant passage is that it is a kind of divine love song. And it's a love that is difficult to distinguish from death. To love is to suffer. And love is perfected in suffering. And Jesus learned obedience. And if you go with Kierkegaard, who defined love as obedience and love as duty, love itself is an act of obedience that Jesus had to learn. And we reach through our suffering to love. And suffering often intensifies that love. God did not visit us to redeem us, to stop us from suffering, but to open our hearts to love. And in so doing, he opened the floodgate for both suffering and love. And at the crux of the suffering and the love, as we reached out in service, that is the meaning of servanthood. And therein lies not captivity, not being slave, to ourselves, but perfect freedom in the service of Jesus Christ. Amen.